We are excited to have you guys back. And you know what? Y'all don't look any chubbier than you did before. Y'all look great. Hey, I'm just playing. But hey, once again, we're so blessed that y'all are with us today. Y'all, just to be honest with you, this week I asked Brother Mark to come up and preach for us because my wife had me pretty busy this week with a whole lot of family stuff into Odessa. And I just knew that if I were to try to do both, I would not be able to write an effective message in the amount of time I was able to put in. So Mark was willing to step up to the plate. Well, the truth is we arm wrestled for it, and he won. So, I mean, have you, have you, when he got into it in the first service, I thought he was going to bust his sport coat a couple times. So watch the more intense he gets. It'd be pretty cool. Anyway, hey, y'all, let's pray. We're going to let Mark get going. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have just to be able to hang out today and just get into the Word and so the Word gets into us. Lord, I pray that you would just anoint Mark's mouth. Lord, we thank you for just how effective of a communicator we have in our congregation. Lord, we're grateful that he is such a willing vessel to be used for your honor and for your glory. God, I pray that you will prep our ears so that we will be willing to receive what is coming for us. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Thank you guys for being here. Welcome back from, I think like Jeremy said, uh, phase one or round one of the holiday fiasco. And uh, hopefully you had a chance to spend uh, time with the people you wanted to be around this holiday and you were able to uh, express your thanksgiving. And, and if not, uh, there's not a better place to do that than right here, not a better time to do that than right now. And and I don't think there's a better passage of Scripture for us to be uh, entertaining at this time of the year than, than Ephesians chapter 2, where we're going to be this morning. Uh, it's been an exciting trip for me to get to prepare for this. And, and I'll just be honest with you, you all are probably going to get a little better, better message than the first service did because I was able to take some notes during James Page's teaching of the Sunday school class. So I, I was able to kind of correct some mistakes and add some, some detail that might make it a little more interesting for you. So thanks, James, for that. And, and, and just excited about getting into this. And as I did the study this, this past couple of weeks, uh, God has, uh, has really impressed me with the book of Ephesians as, not, not as if he had not formerly, but this is the first time I've really set out to, to explore the entire book at one time because God challenged me early on in my preparation for the message today. I knew it was, you know, the IBC 260, we're going to stay on track, and, and I chose to do that to eliminate my own, uh, my own <laughs> ideas from, from preoccupying me, and, and so I knew exactly what God wanted to share this morning. It was from Ephesians 2, because that's what's on the schedule. So what I was excited, he challenged me early on in my preparation to do something I'd never done with an entire book. I'd done it with chapters before, but never with an entire book. He challenged me last couple of weeks to read the book of Ephesians from verse 1 to verse whatever that is, the first word to the last word, every single day. And of course, I balked at first, as you might imagine. You know, that's a, that's a pretty big bite, Lord, isn't that? But I got to thinking about it, and he continued to, to, to sort of prod me to do that. And I finally was obedient after a two or three days of you neglect or, or resistance, and, and I, when I did, I timed it because I knew that time would be the one factor that I would use as an excuse, as we usually do, for not giving God what he wants. And even in my limited uh, reading ability, uh, it, it only took me 18 minutes. Y'all with me? 18 minutes I read from the very first word to the very last word of the book of Ephesians. And I said, oh, I can do this. And so I was obedient for the most part. 
as we move toward today, and, and, and I, it was amazing what God did in, in opening up His Word and, and, and collectively building it together in my mind and my heart and, and revealing truth that I thought I already knew and reminding me of things that I knew I knew but I had forgotten. And I think that's really how this all fits into the Thanksgiving season. Because why do we even bother commemorating the Thanksgiving holiday? It's to cause us to remember, to reflect on a time that was not quite as prosperous as we enjoy today. To look back at what it could have been or what it once was. So that we are more appreciative, more grateful, more thankful for what we have. And I believe God wants to use that today for us in a spiritual sense. To cause us to reflect and look back and remember from whence we have come, spiritually. And I think that's what he intended for the Ephesians at this time when he wrote this letter, especially chapter 2. And I think, I don't think I'm, I'm presuming upon God's word that it applies directly to you and I today. And so, entertain me if I use personal pronouns, if I stick us in there instead of them, because I believe it's a letter to us as well. I believe that Paul's prayers his proclamations, and his, the plans that he lays out that God has for us weren't just for the Ephesians, they were for us. Because we're all a part of that same line. Well, the book of Ephesians is an incredible book. Six short chapters that I believe the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to put down just about every major tenet that the believer needs to understand and apply. You know, we don't have time to go through all of it, but I believe that a, a somewhat of an overview is necessary because it's, you know, we get in this habit as, as New Testament believers, as 21st century Christians of, of pulling things out and want to analyze them in and of themselves. And it's just not the way God's Word was intended. That's why reading from front to back is so vital in you fully comprehending all that God has to say to you in His Word this morning. And I challenge you to do that. That's, that's a challenge I'll go ahead and officially offer from the pulpit that you take this on as, as, a, as a personal acceptance of this challenge to, to, to read the book of Ephesians, first word to last word, every day of this coming week and see if God does not just open things up to you that you've never comprehended before, that you've never noticed or realized or recognized. I believe it's the most concise, consolidated you can call it a handbook. You can call it an owner's manual. You can call it an instruction booklet. I, but, you know, I, and I mentioned this to the first service, if, if something happens in the 2020 elections and, and, and it, it all goes haywire for us and, and all of a sudden the Bible is outlawed, as, believe it or not, folks, that's, there's legislation in some states in our country that has been proposed for the last two or three years that would outlaw the use of Scripture in public forum in public places. So it's not that far-fetched. But let's just say something like that happened and we were, we were limited or restricted and the, 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 the officials in power said we could only have one book of Scripture, not one book of the Bible, not one book, the, the Bible, but one book out of the Bible, I think I would choose this one. If I just had one, if I only had access to one book of Scripture, I believe Ephesians might be that. And I think you may feel a little bit that inclined. If you'll take this challenge and read through it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Well, verse, chapter 1, first of all, just a little preview. Let's set this all up. 
chapter 1 is divided basically into two parts. And, and really, it, it, it consists of the, uh, we'll look at this like a, like a Christmas gift since we're in the season. Let's go ahead and, and use that analogy. Let's just, you, you guys, you're going to be putting together stuff here coming up pretty soon. So just get used to this and you can figure this out as we go. But if you get this big package, one of the first things you pull out of that package is the, is the list of items that are in it. Okay? You got the materials that are in that package. And it lists them one by one by one. And basically that's what chapter one is. It's sort of that, it's sort of that materials list. It's all the things, all the tenets, all the precepts, all the principles of life in Christ laid out for you there in chapter one. And Paul just gushes over them. He just goes kind of, he gets kind of excited. I think chapter one is two sentences, maybe three. Because Paul just goes on and on. He's so excited about what he's unpacking for these believers. But he says, here's what you've got in this package. Boom, 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 boom. And he goes down through all those tenets. He talks about our adoption and election. Talks about our redemption and forgiveness. Talks about God's master plan to bring everything into unity in Christ, in the heavens and in the earth. He talks about our hope and our inheritance. The guarantee sealing of the Holy Spirit. He gives us all these things. All these principles of the faith in chapter 1. Then we'll jump over to chapter 3. He talks about the unity and he, dis he discloses the mystery of the Gentiles to them for the first time. How God had called him to their ministry and how they had been accepted into the fellowship through Christ. And that was a tremendous piece of information for them to have at that point if you, if you don't understand where the Gentile mind and heart was at that time. But then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are like the, the uh, what would you call it? If you've got that package, you've got the materials list and you've got the assembly instructions. How to take what's in that package and put it all together. And Paul goes to great, into great detail and it takes great pains in explaining how to apply these principles of, the, of life in Christ to every aspect of life. And you know, he goes through the, the whole uh, gamut of relationships in the family and slave to master, etc., etc. And then you know, of course, he, he closes the book with this description of the armor of God and how to do spiritual warfare, basically. I think that's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul, knowing that if, if these believers in Ephesus, if we as believers in Christ take these, in, these ingredients that we've been given, that we've inherited through Christ, and we actually put them together, and we start functioning as Christians, as true believers in Christ, that we're going to face some adversity, and we're going to need some armor, we're going to need some weaponry, and we're going to know how, need to know how to use it. I think that was Paul's wisdom in putting it all together. That's why it's such an incredible, concise, consolidated description of life in Christ. And if you, if you read through it a couple times, you'll notice some 22 times that phrase, in Christ or in Him, is used in just six short chapters. It's such an incredible, detailed account. That's why I think, you know, if I could just choose one book, this would be the book I think I would choose, that I would keep this with me, that I feel like I could go to in any circumstance, in any situation, and answer any question that I might have about my faith. 
Of course, we're going, to call, we're going to park this morning. We're going to camp out in chapter 2. So go ahead, if you've got your, your copy of Scripture, go ahead and open to that, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. I know it's going to be up on the screen for you, but I would really rather that you read it out of your copy. Jot down a few notes as we go through there. But, but, uh, but please exercise that right that you have to have a copy of Scripture while we have it and take advantage of that. See it for yourself. We'll talk... First of all, about the title. You can see the title of the message, And You But God So That. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> and You But God So That. Does anybody that was not here in the first service know what those are? Those are correlative conjunctions or correlative. I don't know how you say that. Correlative conjunctions. And I didn't know what they were either. I just knew that every time I read through chapter 2, those six words just jumped off the page at me. Just jumped off like they were in bold print or in larger font. I couldn't figure it out. I knew there was something, but I didn't know what to call them. So I went to the English teacher down the hall from where I, my classroom is at Tatum High School, and I asked her, what are these? Those are correlative or correlative conjunctions. means they actually correlate or show a relationship and connect through that relationship. And I, I just knew that something about those was significant. There's actually a fourth one in the chapter at the end, but we're not going to get to that one this morning. We don't have enough time to get to these three. But I want you to understand, these three conjunctions represent, I think, the three tenses of life in Christ. As we go through here, I want you to, I want you to see this. This is what I think Paul is is being reflective and projective on these, these Ephesian Christians early in their life as Christians, as believers in Christ. He wants them to, number one, know where they've come from. He wants, number two, for them to know where they are. And he wants, number three, for them to know where they're headed. Because I don't know about you guys, but I kind of I agree with that, the quote. And I've heard this for most of my life. If we ever forget from where we've come, we'll soon lose sight of where we're going. Have y'all ever heard that? Have y'all ever thought about that? If we, if we lose sight of where we've come from, if we lose sight of what we've been, it's awful easy for us to lose sight of where we're going. We'll lose our way. And I think that, that applies spiritually. I think that's one of the points that Paul's trying to make here this morning. So let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The and you... The story of our deprivation, the story of our past. As a believer, these next 10 verses play out like your biography, if you are a believer. So in our past, in our past of deprivation and depravity, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Does that pretty much sum it up, believer, where you were? Does that pretty much sum it up, Christian, where you were before Christ? Yes, this means yes, this means no. Y'all with me out there? I know that when I was uh, first exposed to the gospel, I had a real problem understanding that I was bad because I was a good kid. You know, I wasn't this, this troublemaker. I was taught to respect authority and, and to submit to them and, and to honor my father. You know, I was taught all those good lessons 
And, and I had never done anything that in my mind was so heinously wrong until my coach kept sharing the gospel with me in FCA over and over and over. And he kept going through this stuff that even the thoughts and tents of your heart and mind. And then he started talking about Adam and all that other stuff. And, and I figured out pretty quick, I didn't have to have done anything too wrong to be a sinner, to be dead in trespasses and sin. Number one, I was a sinner, but I was dead by birth. I was stillborn spiritually. I had to come to that conclusion. Number two, I was a sinner by nature. I was dead because of my nature, as it just showed us on the, in the Scripture. We followed that nature. And then I was a sinner by choice because I really didn't have a choice. Let's look at the wording. Let's look at the way the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this. And you. Let's just break it down like that. Look at your book. It's your scripture with me. And you. That and is that conjunction, that connecting word that connects the, 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 the list of things that Paul is praising God for in chapter 1 to what he's about to talk about in chapter 2. And you, the word you, when Paul uses that personal pronoun, in his letters to the churches, he generally is referring to a group, a particular group, the Gentiles. When he uses the, the pronoun we, most of the time he's talking to the Jew and including himself in that mix. When he uses us or all, that's when he's bringing everything together in unity in Christ, the Gentile, the Gentile and the Jew. But he says, and you, you Gentiles, were dead. Now, I'm not going to go into the Greek and the Hebrew of what the word dead means, but dead means, dead means dead, all right? Dead, lifeless, incapable of any type of response. Of course, we, we know here he's talking about spiritual death, right? Y'all with me? But guess what? The same characteristics are, are accurate and, and the, and, and, apply to spiritual death that apply to physical death. Y'all been to enough funerals to know, and you've probably been to some crazy ones that some, some weird stuff has happened and people say and do some th strange things sometimes in moments of grief. But have you yet to see a corpse respond to anything that happens in a funeral? I have not either and don't want to, quite honestly, okay? But if you're dead, you're incapable of a response, if you're physically dead, you're incapable of physical response. If you're spiritually dead, you're incapable of a spiritual response. We were dead. He said, you were dead. You were dead where? You were dead in. Don't overlook that little two-letter word. We talk about it. We use it in our walk, in our Christian life in Christ, walking in the Spirit, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's a powerful, significant word. That word in indicates a location. You ever stopped and thought about it like that? It indicates a location. You were dead in, encompassed by, engulfed by, surrounded by, incarcerated by. Your trespass, trespass is, and your sins. Now why did Paul use two different words there? I think for emphasis, in my simple mind, here's how I look at it. Trespasses. The Greek, basically for that word, trespass, means to step across the line or to fall to one side or to stray off course. And I kind of see that in my simple mind as, as one side of the sin coin 
that represents those sins that I willfully commit, those sins that I see the sign, but I cross the line anyway. You know, I see the purple on the tree, but I go ahead and shoot across there anyway. Y'all with me, you can relate. Don't say amen, say oh me, you know. But I think that's what trespasses represents in my simple mind are those sins that we willfully commit, those things that we willfully do knowing God's boundaries are already there. But then he says, you're also dead in sins. Well, the word for sins in the Greek is a hunter's term or an archer's term that refers to missing the mark. Okay? Romans 3.23, what does it say? What does it say? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what does that mean God's target is? If we've fallen short of His glory, what was His target? God's glory. God's glory is our target. And anything that we do or don't do that causes us to miss that target is sin. You were dead without hope. Without You were helpless, hopeless, in, in, incapable of any kind of response. And you were dead in, encompassed by, surrounded by, incarcerated in your trespasses and your sins. Then you, if you'll read with me the rest of that passage, we, we've already read it, but look. In which you once walked. You, we walked. What does that word walk mean? That means it was a lifestyle. We had a lifestyle of trespass and sin. Okay? We followed the course of this world. In my mind, I see iron rails. And we were on those iron rails of the world. We had no choice. We were set up on those rails, and we could only go where those rails took us. And we followed the prince of the power there. And what I see in my mind is Satan. The engine is Satan. I'm the caboose on the train of this world and Satan is the, is the engine and he's the one pulling the train and I was following him and I had no other choice because that's who I was hooked to because I was dead in trespasses and sin. I followed the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. I walked after, my lifestyle was after the lusts of my flesh and the desires of my mind. And all those symptoms, all those characteristics awarded me with the title of a child of wrath. By nature, I was a child of wrath. I was dead in trespasses and sin by birth. I was dead in trespasses and sin by my nature. And I was dead in my trespasses and sin by my choice because I had no other choice. I was on the iron rails of the world going straight to you know where. So this is, is this a clear enough account? Believer, you, you probably can tell me yes or no. Is this, has Paul done a good enough job of painting the picture of the bad news, of our depravity, of our total helplessness in our sin to do anything about it? Well, there's one more word I want to look at. It's that word wrath. We were children of wrath. Folks, that means that because of all that, that we were helpless and hopeless to change in and of ourselves, we were targets of wrath. We had a wrath target, a wrath bullseye tattooed on our backside. Wrath. Ask most believers what wrath means. 
the first thing that comes out of their mouth is anger. It's way more serious than anger. Wrath is actually the punishment or consequences that, that are a result of anger. You with me? And guess whose anger or wrath our consequences are at the hand of? God. It's God's wrath we're talking about, not, a, not an upset child in Walmart, not a, not a wife that's disappointed with you not coming home on time. It's the wrath of God. And we had targets on our back. And guys, I don't know about you, but I don't know God to miss very many times. And if we'd been left in that state, we're dead. We're dead. We're hopeless. We're helpless. There's nothing we can do about it. We are children of wrath. We are targets of God's wrath, and he doesn't miss. That's the past. That's our deprivation. That's the, as a biblical biography of a believer, that's the believer's past. That's where we've all come from. If you know Christ this morning, if you are walking in faith and been saved by the grace of God, that's where you were. Why is it important for you to understand that? Because sometimes if we forget or lose sight of where we've come from or what we were, we many times will lose sight of where we're going and who we are. But let's look at the good news. The second conjunction there, the two most exciting, I think, the two most incredible, <laughs> invigorating, enlivening words in all of Scripture, and I could use other adjectives, but I, I can't pronounce them. What's the first two words of that next passage? But God. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Man, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That loved, what tense is that word in? It's in past tense. Because what's the next verse? Even when we were dead, in our trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Amen? By grace, you've been saved. Amen? Say that with me. By grace, you've been saved. Amen. But God, even in the condition we were in, because He was rich in mercy, What's mercy? It means we don't have to suffer what we deserve. It means we are spared consequences that we were deserving to receive. God, because of his great love for us, chose to have mercy on us while we were still dead. You know, sometimes we want to take a little credit for this salvation thing. We, we want to kind of trump in and, and think we had something to do with this. But right here, I, I just all I know from reading this is I was dead, okay? I was incapable of any kind of response to God. So could I love him first? Hello? What does a dead person have to have first before they can do anything? They got to have life they got to be resurrected. They have to have been loved first. You were dead. 
in your trespasses and sin. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for you, even when you were dead, made you alive and raised you up. By grace are you saved. We talked about mercy. Being spared the consequences that we were due. What is grace? Receiving those that we are not due. So God did the flip-flop on us because His great love for us. Because something we can't even fathom. We can't even in our finite minds, come close to understanding the magnitude of God's love for us. One thing we got to remember here, that mercy, that grace, and that love did come at an expense. We didn't have to pay for it. That was the privilege that we received through grace. We got that, 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 that wrath target taken off our back and we became a trophy of God's grace. Just like that. But there was a price to be paid. And it's another but God. Turn with me in your Bible to Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8. And tell me if this, these two words are not the most exciting, encouraging, uplifting, energizing, enlivening verse words in all of Scripture. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us in it while we were still sinners. We were still dead in our trespasses and sin. Even while we were still there, in that condition, Christ died for us. Lest we forget from whence we have come. Lest we forget what it cost. This thing of, love, of God's love has always, I think, evaded most Christians, their comprehension. Sometimes we just can't because our love is so finite. Our love is so frail and fallible and human. We have a very difficult time understanding really what God's love is like. Well, I heard a description that helped me to kind of come to terms with it. This this is more an illustration for the dads, but I think think you can all agree and and I think you can all relate. This was was shared with me by a guy named Neil Jeffries, uh, ex-quarterback for the University of Baylor, played a little pro ball. He's now an evangelist out of Prestonwood in Dallas and travels around, does a lot of speaking, does a lot of Bible studies. And I heard this in one of his men's Bible studies He's trying to convey to men how, how God's love really is for us because it's so hard for us to comprehend. And he said, guys, remember back when your first child was born. Y'all go with me now. And it doesn't have to be your first child. It could be any of your children. But your wife's pregnant, going along through the term. The, the baby's growing. Everything's fine. You're, you're excited about that day that you'll have a son or a daughter And he asked the question, what would you have done for that unborn child? And the answer is anything. What would you have sacrificed for that unborn child? And the answer is my life. He says, now fast forward. The day of delivery, your first baby's birthday, 
the doctor hands you that little lump of flesh, what would you have done for him now? What would you do for her now? More than anything. What would you sacrifice for them now? My life and anybody else's life that I needed to. You know what I mean? Were you there, dads? Can can you agree? Did you feel that way? If not, we need to talk. And yet, that child had never done a single thing for you. Even in your hands, that child could not do anything for you at that moment. And that child, for years to come, would not be able to really contribute anything to your life other than just their presence. And get this, it'll be a long time before that baby can even reciprocate your affection. It'll be several months before that baby can even respond to your love. That's just a a glimpse of the love that God has for you. That's just a dim reflection of the kind of love that he has for you. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God. Because he was rich in mercy and had great love toward us, lifted us up, brought us back to life, did whatever he had to do, sacrificed his own son so that he could just have a relationship with us. Because there was nothing we could do for him And for many years, I don't know, I got saved at 15. That meant 15 years that I couldn't even, I couldn't even reciprocate God's affection for me. And some of you are sitting here today, you've been born again for 15 years, and you still haven't learned how to return God's affection. You still haven't learned how to worship Him. You still haven't learned how valuable that is to Him. But hopefully this morning, being reminded of from where you have come, and the intensity and the depth of God's love for you that maybe now, maybe now, we might figure it out. We might get away from the gooing and gone and the fake smiles because we got gas, you know, to really being able to express ourselves to God and return His affection. I like this quote. Don't know where it came from. It just kind of showed up one day. Here's here's the description of what's happened between our past and our present. God gave his best when we were at our worst, when we needed it most, and deserved it least. That make sense? God gave his best when we were at our worst, when we needed it the most, and deserved it the least. That's how much God loved you. That's the price he paid. That's what he was willing to do to enliven you, to bring you back from the dead. So that's God's, that's our past as believers. That's our present as believers. Now let's look at the future because I think that's one of the things that he wants to make sure that this church, this new church in Ephesus understands that not only have they been brought from a heinous past of, of total depravity, they've been reclaimed to a new life in Christ for a purpose, for a purpose. God doesn't have ulterior motives. He's got purposes, okay? Let's look at the purpose in the conjunction, so that. 
and you, but God, so that, our expectations. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, period. Read that again. Read that again. So that in the coming ages he might what? Show or display or put on display the immeasurable riches. You understand what that word immeasurable means? The infinite riches of his grace and kindness to who? Toward you. And you were dead in trespasses and sin. But God, through his tremendous mercy and love, so that he could lavish his love, his blessing, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness toward us. You see, we're God's kids. Mom, Dad, what's your number one motivation when it comes to to your relationship with your children? What do you want for them? Talk to me. Everything. You want them to have the best of everything. And sometimes we overdo it to their their detriment, don't we? God, God doesn't do that. He knows how to handle that. But just like we want to give our kids everything we can possibly give them. I remember my dad used to just kill himself. Matter of fact, he died at 40 because he he worked himself completely silly and completely to death trying to give his family the things that he did not have as a sharecropper's son. Can y'all relate? And what do you want for your children? You want the very best you can give them. And you will stop at no degree to make sure they've got everything they need, the very best. That's what God wants to do. He, he, he saved us so that he can lavish those gifts upon us. Now, before you get too excited about that, skip on to uh, the last verse, verse 10. Can you throw it up there? We'll skip over the one that we're real familiar with that Paul kind of interjects in there just to qualify everything, but he goes on to say this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, there's the second part of the so that. And you were dead in trespasses and sin, but God rescued you from that, showed you mercy, showed you grace, put you in a position of heavenly heavenly authority, gave you eternal life, so that he can lavish his blessings upon you in order for you to be able to what? Do what he left us here to do. See, we have a disconnect sometime in the church. We sometimes see ourselves as a reservoir of God's blessing. You know, as a a holding tank for God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and goodness and kindness. We're not supposed to be a reservoir. We're a river. God's goodness and grace, great grace and kindness and blessing and forgiveness is not intended to stop with you, believer. 
It's intended to flow through you to others. You weren't saved for you. You were saved for someone else to be saved. And someone else to be saved. And someone else to be saved. We were, we were so that, so that. God could show us off. You know, just like you want to give your kids good gifts, what's the other thing you want to do with them? My grandbabies, your grandbabies. Somebody mentions grandbabies, what do you flip out? You flip out the phone, you show them the pictures because you're proud of them. And if anybody's, if the conversation lulls at any point in time, guess what you start talking about? You start talking about your kids or your grandkids because you're proud of them. Because all the lavish blessing you've poured into their life for their benefit and their prosperity, you want to, to others to see. And folks, that's what God uses us for. He wants to pour His blessing, pour His grace, pour His goodness into our lives so that we are His walking, talking banners and billboards. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says this, but thanks be to God who in, in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. The Holman translates it, puts us on display. And through us spreads the aroma or the fragrance of Christ everywhere. Yeah, God wants to lavish his children with blessing because he loves us. But he also wants us to be the, the display of His glory. He also wants us to show the rest of the world His glory through how He is able to bless, comfort, care for, and protect us. And that's not always positive stuff either. That's another message we'll get into another time. But God wants to spoil us to the point right, right shy of spoilation so that we will be his walking, talking, billboard, banner, parade of his grace. So we've got the past, the present, and the future. And our question to close this morning is, where are you? What tense do you find yourself in? Real quickly, I'm going to wrap this up as, as fast as I can. Most of us here are probably in the present tense. You know, I mean, I, I don't know that that's really a safe assumption because I do believe that one of the, the biggest mission fields in, in, in America right now is the churches. Because I believe there's a lot of people that, that don't really understand the gospel. You know, remember, Paul started this conversation with the bad news first. We, we avoid that, don't we? We avoid the bad news, but I don't think we can really appreciate the good news unless we know the bad news. I don't think we can really value the amnesty plan God has for us until we understand the incarceration that we're in. And I think we cheat people into thinking they're saved because we're afraid to offend them. We're afraid to, to, to make them uncomfortable. We're, we're afraid to rock their world or have, make them cause themselves to doubt themselves or feel poorly about themselves, you know, erode their self-image or what have you by calling them dead or telling them they are lost. Come on, folks. 
How's the only way you're going to get saved is to know you're lost? But most of us, I think it, it, it would be safe to assume, are in the present. Okay? We know where we've come from. We were there. We, we've been there, done that. And we're saved. And we know that. We know the blessings that we have received. But maybe, just maybe, we haven't completely moved on to the so that part. Maybe we're settled there in the but God part. Maybe we've gotten comfortable. Maybe we've gotten a little bit complacent. Maybe we've gotten a little bit happy. Maybe we've taken for granted some of those things that God did for us in the state that we're in. And folks, when you start taking things for granted, guess what you also start taking? You also start taking credit. You don't want to do that. Because that's God's. So maybe, maybe if you're here this morning and you're in the present in chapter 2 here, maybe there's some, some things you need to discuss with the Lord about the so that part. Some of you this morning may be in the so that part. Some of you understand where you've come from. You understand the price that was paid for you. You understand why you were left here on this planet. And maybe you've been doing those things. Maybe you have been actively engaged. You found your ministry. You found your calling. And you are pursuing that calling with a passion or maybe you were. And maybe over the last few years, maybe you're still doing some of those same things. But maybe you're not doing them with quite the same passion. You know, the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus shows up again in Scripture in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. It was penned by John the Apostle about 30 years after Paul wrote this first letter to him. And he commends them at first for being diligent, by being faithful, by persevering and enduring. But then he says, this I have against you. You have departed from the love you first had. So repent and return to the works that you did at first. And we won't get into the discussion about what that first love was, but I'm just simple-minded enough. I went back to the Greek, and I read the sentence in the Greek form and what it transliterated into. And to me, it tells me these folks, they didn't lose their love for Christ. They lost the understanding and appreciation and intense emotional engagement with the love that he had had for them. And folks, you know, that's the love that prompts and promotes and enables us to love others. They were still doing all the same things they had done. But Jesus scolds them and says, This I have against you. You have left or departed from the love that first loved you. Well, maybe you're in the past. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you're, I can't smell you from here, but you're dead. Maybe you've come to the realization this morning that, you know, you got that big package and it had the materials list in it, what's included in this box, and you've seen that, and it's got the instructions to, to assemble the product, but you open the top of that box and there's nothing in the box. And that's kind of what chapter 2 is for Paul. He's making sure that these Ephesian believers 
don't just have the supply list and don't just have the instructions for assembly, but they actually have something in the box to put together. And folks, if that's you this morning, it's, this, it's time for you, okay? It's time for you to understand the condition that you are currently in and will eternally be in if you don't do something about it today. And this may be the last opportunity you have to realize what price was paid for you. And then while you're in that dead state, Jesus has already reclaimed you. All you have to do is receive him. Whether you're in the present, whether you're in the future, whether you're in the past, where are you in your biography as a believer? Where are you in your biography in Christ this morning? There's something for all of us this morning to deal with with the Lord. If nothing else, use this moment to not give thanks for things, but come down and give some thanks to one. Not for the things that we have, but give thanks to the one who allows us to have them. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us together this morning. We thank you for your word and the truth uh, that cannot be resisted, it cannot be refuted, it cannot be ignored. We thank you so much for the incredible mercy and the indescribable, immeasurable riches of your love and the powerful grace that you have given us and put at our disposal. Father, we praise you for reminding us. Re-engage us, Father, in your work. Show us where we have erred and where we need to travel. In Jesus' name.